When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's conversant is Nina Power. Nina Power is a philosopher and an author of What Men Want and a senior editor at Compact Magazine. She is a highly intellectual dame. And in this conversation, this is our second conversation we spoke about a year ago about her book, What Men Want. And in this conversation, we talk about all things political and her various analytical tools for dissecting the world as it is and was and might one day be. We also get a little personal and Nina opens up her heart just a little bit and we get to see her inner workings. And in doing so, we talk about what it is to be Gen X, our strengths and our failures, and what we could probably be doing better to help the world as, you know, ironic hipsters that my generation have always aspired to be. Great conversation. Not going to say anything else. Let's dive right in. Without further ado, here is Nina Power. Oh, come on, this camera. Sorry. Just, just, just really slowly put your hand and then slowly bring your hand back to where your face is. I did that too fast. <laughs> <laughs> okay, there okay, she yes. is. Okay. No <laughs> sudden movement. <laughs> right. So, what are you doing at Compact? Uh, yeah. So I'm like a senior editor, whatever that is. But um, I, well, I edit pieces. I commission pieces. I deal with people who have subscription problems. <laughs> I uh, we do a weekly podcast. Uh, we do events mostly in New York, and. Yeah, I don't know. And where are you stationed? So I'm in London. Yeah, okay. But the, the other three editors are in uh, New York. You probably know some of them. You might know Jeff Schulenberger, his oh, work. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, he's great. And uh, it was set up by Saurabh Amari um, and Matthew Schmitz. Um, they're kind of Catholics. Well, they are Catholic. Uh, so it has a kind of Catholic element. But it's kind of economically left, socially conservative i guess yeah where are you in the catholic kind of catholic uh social well, left I, mean, I am i am sort of half anglican i suppose like i do go to church but i'm not baptized and i'm more on the pagan side of things but oh. uh, sort of um <laughs> like you, you have antlers that you wear on occasion uh, and... absolutely very into very into nature and uh yeah and no, but I mean, I think there's this kind of place where lots of people, lots of people are politically homeless, right? So there's this kind of need or desire to have conversations with people you disagree with, you yeah. know, which has been kind of verboten. And, uh, and, and, you know, a lot of people are socially conservative and economically left, you know, like they want redistribution, they want the rich to pay taxes, but they don't uh -huh. want like drag queen queens like grinding on their children. I mean, yeah. you know. This yeah. is like a kind of normal position, which isn't really represented very well in the mainstream. Why not? Well, I think because the right who might be socially 
conservative in some ways are also liberals when it comes to the market. You know, at least some of them. I mean, the kind of neoliberal. But I think so we're in this kind of post-liberal space. Like, you know, liberalism has, has failed because it succeeded. And what happens next? You know, yeah. do we need to bring back religion? Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Yeah, all, all things I'm mapping out. What, what do you think you're, you've mapped out over the last uh, few months working with Compact and then in your own kind of explorations? Like, what do you like looking at? What's the most interesting? Kind of, well, uh, I, I think it's this kind of um, precisely identifying this space, right? So through, through an analysis of how, think, how the land lies, right? Like it's kind of... Um, you know where are people at i mean it used to be on the left i think that you would meet people where they where they are right so you would talk to everybody and and you would explain your position and you'd say this is our analysis of capitalism and this is why your life sucks um yeah. but i think you know the left as so so called left has become you know extremely unwilling or unable to speak to people it disagrees with and has become very insular and hermetic and judgmental so I think there's a whole group of people who want to have conversations about serious issues like abortion, families, the future of their country, immigration, markets, et cetera, et cetera, social and political and religious issues with people who have different opinions. So I, I think it's it's looking back at kind of liberalism, which would include things like the sexual revolution and asking questions, you know, what? What does it mean 60 years later that we had the pill? What effect did this have? Yeah. What effect are dating apps having on young people? Um, what about these kind of questions of technology and transhumanism and, you know, these and AI and all of these sorts of things? So, I mean, I think what we're doing is largely geopolitical analysis with some kind of social and cultural analysis, but we're trying to avoid directly um, engaging in the culture war in that kind of back and forth where it becomes a sort of reactive yeah. thing, if you see what I mean. Like we're interested in like deeper analysis, right? So a lot of us are coming from theoretical backgrounds, like uh, Jeff Schillenberger um, is very interested in uh, Girard. I would say we all are, like René Girard, sorry, this uh, okay. you know great French, uh, well, no, not French, but a uh, great thinker of theology, anthropology, um, trying to understand things like rivalry envy and desire Ambition. and how these are yeah. yeah how these things are kind of constitutive of all social groups um and how in a way this leads to kind of problems of sacrifice and scapegoating um and how do we sort of come to terms with those tendencies and yeah 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 what came to mind last night I think I woke up at like four or something like that. And I'm like, oh, okay. I was anxious. I'm like, well, what am I going to talk to Nina about? And the, the, this question popped into my head that I've been thinking about. And it's kind of, it's kind of a triggering kind of even question. Like in Iran, there's all these protests about the hijab. And mm -hmm. you see, you know, uh, the Westerners supporting this. Like, yeah, liberate the women, liberate the women, liberate the women. And I understand our perspective on that. But there's a couple of questions that come up. One, do we think that our way of life is good for us, let alone the entire world? And secondly, 
if we trace back our own like process of liberation, isn't that how we got to where we are now, where we can't even define a woman? And what was the what's the through through line between burning a bra and uh, confusing your pronouns? Everybody's confusing, uh, confusing their pronouns, right? Sure. I mean, so there's a lot in your question, one of which is a sort of broader question about cultural relativism or cultural specificity, and the other of which is maybe the question of the relationship between feminism and progress and, and where we've ended up. Um, I suppose they, they are related, um, of course. I very It's a very, very complicated um, thing, right? It's... Let me start with the feminism question as I see it. It is our history, it's part of our history in the West that at certain moments women demanded particular kinds of rights, as did disenfranchised men. So we can talk about um, suffrage um, in the first wave and uh, a desire for a certain kind of political representation um, as a form of um, equality based for when someone like Mary Wollstonecraft, you know, the word feminism doesn't exist. But when she talks about things like moral capacity, she says, we both have it. Men and women are both moral agents, right? We, we, we wouldn't say if a woman committed a crime that she can't be held responsible, right? We might hold her slightly differently responsible, but we do think that women uh, are adult human <laughs> female yeah. and they are they are moral creatures, right? in the same way that we think the, that men are moral creatures. So we're capable of virtue. Her kind of provocation off the back of the French Revolution and some of the ideas about equality, universality, and so on is to say, well, if we're all equal, if if mankind is, is equal in some way, um, why are women uh, being treated as unequal, right? What would it mean for women to have certain kind of equality? Um, and I don't think this, this denies difference between men and women, but it says in particular areas, given that women have moral capacity, why not test them to see if they also have rational capacity? So her provocation or her test is to say, if you educated women, right, give women education, if they really are constitutively stupid, then they're going to mess it up, you know, and then nothing will be lost. It will just have been an experiment. But yeah. as she kind of suggests, well, actually, no, women are also capable of reason. Um, and therefore, they 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 should have political uh, representation um, as well as moral agency. So, this is a provocation. It happens at a particular moment. It follows from revolutionary uh, events in France that the kind of um, you know dissident people in Britain and elsewhere in the West are picking up on, and they're they're thinking, oh wow, what does it mean to talk about equality, universality, and fraternity? Um, you know, and, and can this brotherhood of man be extended to to women? And this is obviously a debate that's happening in the late 18th century. Um, and I just I want I want to highlight that they were we don't think of them as dissidents because they won. Right. So dissidents right. now are yes. the reactionaries. But at that point in history, egality, yeah. liberty, fraternity were dissident ideas. No, absolutely. And you have conservatives like Edmund Burke, most famously writing very strongly to say, look, be careful. This is what happens when you have a revolution. Things happen too quickly. Things get destroyed. It's too fast. You'll you'll end up with the terror. And he was correct. Nevertheless, the Republic, in a way, settled into itself, right? And we have a general sort of acceptance 
in the West of um, the centrality of, of these kind of concepts politically and elsewhere. Like, what does it mean to be equal, right? And it's a very long-winded way of saying <laughs> there are also kind of, you know, there are political influences. There are also kind of market and economic shifts and technological shifts that basically bring women along, whether they like it or not. <laughs> you know, we can talk about agriculture. We can talk about the Industrial Revolution. We can talk about the conversion of women from, if you like, almost, a, I don't know, a natural feature of humanity to uh, a workforce, yeah. right? Which is to say, so rather than tie women to their, their biological capacity, uh, women become workers, right? This is also not necessarily in uh, women or, or men's interests, but it is in the interest of capital. It is in the in the interest of industry. You can keep wages low if you have both men and women working. You don't, you know, the family wage uh, disappears. The idea that you, you need to pay uh, the man in a typical family arrangement enough money so that his wife and children can, can live disappears. And then you have uh, double income, uh, questions you have questions of childcare. These are being discussed uh, a lot at the moment. I, I guess by the the quote unquote reactionary feminists uh, like Mary Harrington, Louise Perry. Yeah. Um, you know, and I'm I'm close to them in some ways. I would say I'm sort of adjacent, <laughs> if you like that kind of language. Um, so I think we have to look at it from a ideas perspective. Like these ideas turn up. Are they? Uh, a function or a consequence of economic or technological or historical shifts that would have happened anyway, right? Um, you can talk about the relationship between Christianity and liberalism. Lots of people have argued that Christianity, because it also has a notion of universality and equality before God, that it um, has the precursor concepts for liberalism, even though we would now regard liberalism as largely secular or secular in practice. Um, so, you know, there are there are big pictures and little pictures. I, I, I resist this idea that we can kind of blame feminism or blame civil rights or blame, you know, the pride movement for the situation we're in now. Like, I think there's a simplistic slippery slope argument okay. that, that a lot of people on the on the right in particular want to make. Right. They want to say at a certain point things go wrong and everything kind of goes downhill from there. Yeah. Right. Like it was, you know, and uh, we can we can uh, blame feminists because they were the ones who started this and, you know, everything's gone wrong. I think it's, this is too simplistic. I think it also raises a question about if feminism is so powerful and it had this mighty effect um, on history, why on earth did the men let it happen? You know, if men are sort of more in charge historically, why would they have let women or given women permission to to have power if you see what I mean right so you might you could equally say well it's men's fault <laughs> yeah, yeah that women you know that women had emancipation right and I think this is because we don't really think about power properly we think about power as a as a form of kind of structure as something kind of external um and that's and uh, a matter of scarcity as opposed to thinking of all these different types of power. So women have always had power, right? We would never say that women don't have power over families, over men. You know, this is this is one of the dangers of saying that women are always victims. You know, again, this puts women back closer to children that yeah. they, they need protecting, yeah. right? But women have very, loads of power. <laughs> they have the power to refuse men. They have the power to upset Choose. men. They have the yeah. power 
yeah, it's 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 a form of power. It's a real power, uh, and it has huge effects. Um, you know, and there are different kinds of power: physical power, emotional power, linguistic power, the power to destroy someone's reputation. Blah blah blah. Um, yeah. So, so to go back to the cultural question about different countries, there is a question, right, do all countries have to go through the same quote-unquote progressive historical process in order to get to the end point? No, <laughs> right? I think this is a terrible mistake. People were talking about this in the 2000s when they were, uh, some people were pro-war, pro-bombing you know, pro -bombing Iraq and other countries in the name of human rights, right? Do you remember this idea of like exporting human rights, exporting yeah. democracy, yeah, this kind yeah. of horrific, horrific idea? Um, and that was based really on this idea that there is one way of doing things, it, you know, that, that all countries must progress through this sort of um, the same process in order to get to liberal democracy, yeah. right? Even though the West doesn't really have liberal democracy either, but this is the kind of fantasy, you know, you can bomb countries into democracy. Yeah. Um, Absolutely not. I, I think that countries do have different ways of doing things. It's and that's good. There are different religious backgrounds. The issue, obviously, we live in a globalized world. There is no, in a way, getting away from the images and the desires and the products that exist um, in certain places and not in others or that are made in some places and taken to others. So you have these deeper questions about desire and consumerism. Um, and you know there is that there's no kind of pure culture left if you see what i mean there are no there are no non global or globally intertwined cultures there might be a few tribes yeah, yeah. you know who shoot, shoot arrows at the, the the cameras but you know let's you know <laughs> let's say that we are we are together in this global morass one way or another and this is very, you know, so so the war becomes a war of images and a war of ideology and a war of what desire looks like. And I think desire? we have to understand. Yeah. So so the desire, I mean, desire is one way of talking about who we are, right? The way in which we, we're composed like, of desire. Our aspirations or? Um let's put it at a sort of deeper level so in order to if you like even stay alive we have a, a kind of fundamental drive to to not only survive let's say to to persist in our being right spinoza will talk about this in terms of our canatas right we have a kind of inbuilt desire for self-preservation but beyond that we're not complete creatures we are constantly lacking, right? We're hungry is, is an obvious example, right? We yeah. eat and then we're full and then we're hungry again. We um, feel that we want things that we don't have, whether that's romantically or materially or I don't know. Yeah, I mean, we want to achieve things for ourselves. This goes back to, to your point, but it, it's bigger than achievement, right? It's It's a kind of it's motivation, right? We're incomplete subjects, right? This is what psychoanalysis tells us that we don't know ourselves completely either. We are motivated by things that are sometimes obscure to us. It yeah. doesn't mean we can't make decisions about how to live and yeah. how to, you know, which habits we ought to acquire, right? There are clearly better and worse ways of living. 
and we yeah. probably all experimented with those and worked out, <laughs> you know, maybe I shouldn't do this thing repeatedly because it's ruining my life. Uh, maybe I should lose some weight. Maybe I should eat this, you know. So we, we have we <laughs> we have some degree of control. But when it comes to just the image of the hijab burning, yeah, the Westerner probably more likely the Western woman projects her own desire for liberation onto that. And in that projection, it it just could be the case that some questions are lost or just assumptions are being projected to that are not really examined. Yeah. Again, this is historically really vital. By the way, the bra burnings wasn't true. That was a kind of uh, made up story. It really? did then happen. Yeah, yeah. But it Nobody burned originally... their bra? No, it was it was something that was written in a newspaper article as a kind of joke, and then but then some women actually did it, but it didn't come from the feminists, and I think, in the first place at least. Um, although sometimes it is, it is very nice to take your bra off. I don't know if you get really high, you don't want to wear a bra. It's great, um, but or when you go to sleep, and so on. But uh, yeah, what is the bra? I mean, it's very you could do a whole you could do a whole hour on the bra. It, you know, it was invented by a man. It's kind of like an extension of yeah. the patriarchy, right? I mean, but yeah, potentially. I mean, why why do women need to wear a bra? I mean, for goodness sake, you know. Anyway, whatever. Let it all hang out, but yeah. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Um, <laughs> but I suppose, okay, so... In Iran, I, I actually was fortunate to to visit Iran a few times in the 2000s. Um, and the history, the recent history of Iran, this, this, all of these movements in Iran over the past few years have to be understood in the context of the 79 revolution. And then also in the context of what was happening with the Anglo-Iranian oil company yeah. and the kind of British, um, you know, if you like, colonization of Iran and the resistance to Britain in particular, but the West in general, you know, Iran was forcibly westernized under the Shah. I mean, men were, men were forced to wear hats, uh, you know, and, and, and there was a kind of massive, uh, very rapid enforced westernization at the level of dress and so on in Iran, which is, again, you do think you impose things too quickly or things happen too quickly and there will be a backlash. Yeah. So, you know, in 79, you have this uprising, you then have the Iran-Iraq war immediately. So Iran is put on a war footing. The the Muslim aspect of the of the revolution imprisons the communists and the left-wing people, like the two-day people in the two-day party. Many of them are killed, right? Six months later in the you know, as 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 the war kicks off, right? The the Iran Iraq War, eighty to eighty eight, is the longest um, war in the twentieth century, um, and you have so you have Iran is this very proud and rightly protective country of its resources, which it does, you know, immense resources. A very beautiful country, uh, extremely. Um, a mind-blowing place, actually, in many ways. Uh, you know, it's obviously Shia, um, Persians and Iranians are not Arabs, famously. 
they uh, very very specific things to their their culture which you know uh, really make them very unique and a very historical um country and how to put it it's so whatever's happening in Iran you have the theocracy you have the theocratic takeover it's partly because Iran was on a war footing you know and that there was this there was no i don't know With moment for, for Iran to to yeah to to be, have a slower nationalism i think you know, this is just my interpretation, by the yeah. way. I'm sure, sure lots of people would disagree with, and it's, it's much more complicated. But yeah. there have been lots of protests in the last 10 years or so, longer, against the the repressive aspects of the regime. Um, there are very well-educated middle-class people in Tehran, in North Tehran, many of whom have travelled the world and speak many languages and, you know, extremely um, educated and cosmopolitan um, middle class. Um, you also have a lot of poor people who are very religious in practice as well. They're very committed to Shiism. And, you know, I wouldn't want to say exactly what all of the causes are of the, the current moment. I think we have to uh, listen to what people are saying in the country and not impose our own interpretation, our own values. If the women are asking for help, if they want support and recognition, then we should listen to that. Um, but I I don't think we should be too hasty, as you say, to read into what's happening there, something that we we know is the better way of doing things, yeah. right? Yeah. Imposing a vision of, of liberal values or, or so-called yeah. so democratic values. Yeah. Um, it's not for us to do that, you know. Well, the uh, I think our ethos as liberals or post-liberals, and I think everybody in America, everybody in the West is liberal, whether they want to be or not. Yeah. It's just the water that we swim it, in. Um, exactly. One thing that we react very strongly against is repression and authority and authoritarianism, but also authority. And at least Americans are so knee-jerky about it that we... W will call anybody a fascist that intrudes upon us or pressures us to behave a certain way. But without some amount of repression of desire, instinct, and, you know, self-motivation or selfishness, uh, we're in a war of wills, right? It, it's all against all. It's, it's all power, um, naked, brutish power. So we need some sort of a recognition of authority and in the conversations that I've been having with the right wing, you kind of hear one thing that I hear a lot in the right wing discourse is this desire for authority and this uh, critique of the world that we live in currently in the West as lacking authority, lacking respect for authority. And I don't know how we go back to respecting authority. I don't know how we, we go back to, you know, People jump to, should we impose religion or not? But it's deeper even than just having a mm -hmm. system of belief. It's having a a willingness to be ruled, right? And to participate in society in some way, shape, or form that is conformist to certain values and ideas. And I don't know how we impose those values. And then the left, kind of under the aegis of 
liberation from all forms of oppression becomes increasingly more oppressive and increasing more judgmental because they also are acting out their desire um, for everybody to obey their flag or whatever it is, right? Or their ethos. So I don't know how we, I don't know if that is particularly a salient underpinning of our personal culture war. And then using these satellite states to cheer along the freedom from different forms of repression uh, is, is kind of something again, that might be our problem ourselves, like our constant revolution that we're constantly in or constant progress that we're constantly uh, imposing upon ourselves, regardless of the consequences uh, or the problems that come up in response to taking those fences down. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't defend authority for its own sake. I mean, I think we're all, even even as a Londoner, even as a, a servant of the crown. <laughs> uh, well, I think I think you know if we're talking about sovereignty and tradition, uh, there might be something slightly different. But authority, uh, you know, is is a bit too close to autocracy or fascism. It's like a you know I I mean maybe some people want a new Führer or a new Caesar, but I I I think. You know, people are much more interested in the common good. I I think we have different interests, right? Like mothers have different interests than single women. Working class men have different interests than capitalists. I don't know. We 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 live in a democratically pluralist world, and the problem is forcing everyone into a straitjacket and saying you must believe you must all believe this, right? People do have different interests. I mean, we see this in the the conflict of rights that is currently being played out over the trans stuff and women's rights. Yeah. You know, at the very least, whatever you want to say about it, it's an obvious conflict of rights, right? So if we take that as our starting point, that politics is basically a form of disagreement. We constantly disagree. We have different rights, different interests. And that basically what we, we have to try and do is come together and make people the least sad, right? It doesn't mean that we're going to make anyone happy, yeah. but... You know, we, we try to negotiate ideally. This is why we need to speak to each other. This is why we need to have dialogue. This is why we shouldn't cut off people, even people we think have radically unpleasant views. You know, I'm, I'm not a total free speech ab- absolutist in the sense that I think defamation is, um, you know, should be dealt with. <laughs> um, but, you know, up until you get to the point about lying about named individuals, I think we need to talk about things that concern us, right? The, all of these difficult things, all of these difficult ideas. There has to be dialogue. There has to be discussion. There has to be negotiation. And if any group of people start saying, you can't criticise us, we're off limits because we're ultimate victims or we're a sacred caste or whatever, you have to be extremely wary, right? Because they, they, yeah. this is where people become tyrannical and they become sociopathic and antisocial um, by virtue of saying that, that they're somehow exempt from um, democratic discussion. Right. So I, I'm not I, I think if there is an order, I think there is an order in the universe. I think there's an order in the way that we 
do things. I think we have particular kinds of bodies. I think that men and women exist and they're real and they're, they're different. Um, I think that there are better and worse ways of living, <laughs> shockingly. Yeah. Uh, you know, there are better and worse things to do to one's body. I think in the first place, one of the most important things is to try to look after oneself, as difficult as that is, to establish order in one's own life, right? That's hard enough, let alone thinking about governance and, yeah. you know, I, I think that we should be extremely wary of institutions. I'm I'm very Illichian. I you know I a fan of Ivan Illich. Sorry, yeah. okay, <laughs> this yeah, great yeah. sort of renegade Catholic thinker who's fundamentally very critical of institutions, um, because in a way institutions, as he says, always turn into their opposite. So things that start off like like medicine. Medicine is about health. Medicine ends up creating patients because. It can make money out of them. It can keep treating people if they're sick, right? Ideally, we would only want to be um, treated for something that we couldn't solve ourselves, right? Medicine and intervention should be extremely minimal. We've seen gross incursions into the Hippocratic Oath and the idea that you shouldn't remove healthy flesh, that you shouldn't tamper with healthy bodies, um, whether we're talking about a mental illness or physical illness. Um, what we're seeing is a, a encroaching medicalization and intervention into all aspects of human life, including things mm -hmm. like grief, depression, sadness, and these all become pathologized and financialized and medicalized. Um, and Illich sees this happening in the early 70s. He writes a book called Medical Nemesis. Um, this book became extremely relevant again in the recent COVID um, era, where you saw this immediate rush um, for uh, medicalization, for, for these political lockdowns, which had no precedent and no basis in, um, you know, the, the existing protocols. Right. It was extremely uh, dubious politically. Yeah. Even people who agreed with this at the time or went along with it and chastised other people are now having to walk that back, I would say. You know, I'm also a big fan of Giorgio Agamben, a very brilliant Italian philosopher. And he was one of the few people really to speak out very early on and repeatedly polemically against the biopolitical state and saying, what on earth are we doing? You know, why are these states locking down? This is an absolute um travesty really of, of human life of social life you know you're telling people they can't see other people and so on you know on what basis yeah. is this happening right yeah um and i think what we saw was as we often see is, is governance by fear you know fear is a very powerful uh deep motivating factor lots of people don't speak out about things that they know aren't true and aren't real because they don't want to lose their jobs because they have families because they are rightly um, afraid of losing what they have because they have responsibilities for other people. There are very few people who are able, therefore, to stand up and say, hang on, what's going on here is completely wrong and then pay the price for it. Yeah. Which we've seen, which we've seen a lot in different um, areas. But I would say particularly over COVID and particularly over the discussion around gender, there have been multiple forms of punishment and mobbing and, and, and cancellation and so on. Yeah. Um, there, there are other issues for which this is true, um, but you know it, it does take courage to to say I don't agree with this. Something is going wrong. Can you? Uh, this is kind of science fictiony, but can you imagine a global world that doesn't have coagulating forms of power, institutions, just where people's desires? 
kind of merge and, and coalesce into these authoritarian bodies up and down? Like, is there any way for humanity to live at the scale that we live at, um, live in with the connectivity that we now are reliant on without so-called institutions? How do you minimize the institution? On, sure. Because institutions yeah. developed or adapted human collectivity at scale. So how do you how do you scale without that crap? Yeah, really complicated because we do need some institutions, right? It's 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 a very radical position to say we need to demolish all the institutions, right? It, yeah. Obviously, some people want to live off grid and 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 live their own lives and, and not be connected and so on. But this is not a scalable <laughs> position, right? However great it might be to sort of grow your own food and live in nowhere and not be online. Um, you know, you could go down the sort of Ted Kaczynski route without the bombings, without yeah. the parcel bombs. Uh, <laughs> I suppose, yeah, it, what I suggested is a kind of suspicion of institutions, right? So at least in the first place, whenever you have a body that says, oh, this is the reality now, or this is how we're going to do things, you know, you need people to say, hang on a minute, you know, is that really a good idea? Is this based in reality? You know, does this... Uh, negatively affect children. You know, I think your discussion with John um, Euler, I, I'm not sure how you pronounce his surname Euler, the other day, yeah. Euler, um, you know, it was very interesting. It was very kind of long and and, and sort of uh, meandering conversation in many ways. But I, I think he really touched on this kind of problem, which liberal institutions don't have a good way of dealing with, which is the infiltration of institutions by extremely negatively motivated individuals yeah or people who in the very least lack the capacity to care or basic empathy yeah i mean whether we accept um Euler's, yeah Euler's yeah, yeah. idea that the, it's a process of decision and, yeah. and you know he's a, he's a very christian he presents in a very kind of uh it, it's a it's a question of free will it, it's so some people i don't know why but let's say some people take it upon themselves to eliminate their own conscience right as he suggested and and they become more and more utilitarian, more and more selfish, more and more antisocial, because everything is simply motivated by what they want to do, regardless yeah. of how, how, whether it hurts other people. But then in the end, it becomes a, even a matter of sadism, like the enjoyment of depriving other people of their life or their innocence or whatever, right? So he, he presented it as a sort of process. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know about this. You know, I, I don't work on psychopathy. Yeah, you can take it or leave that it's... theory, but him pointing out, and I'm glad that the discussion with him went in the direction of, well, why are these types of people promoted by our institutions mm. now? Why are they the leaders of our institution? And I guess what you're angling at maybe is that one way to be suspicious of institution is to be institutions is to be aware that they are breeding ground for people who are pure chess players, uh, pure game theorists. Yes, yeah, right. And I think, you know, a lot of people who want to do, let's say, antisocial things are highly motivated, <laughs> right? Hmm. So, hmm. and often that makes them attractive to institutions because someone rocks up and says, right, I'm going to do all the work, I'm going to, you know, and people are like, oh, cool, you know, great, this person yeah. seems into it, or whatever. Oh, this guy is volunteering to, you know, do all this stuff. Um, and it's very difficult because I think we have a general theory of mind of the other, which is that we trust other people. Let's say not completely and not immediately. We might try yeah. to be a little bit like, oh, hi, 
who are you? What are you into? You know, a friend says, oh, this guy's okay. You know, you can trust yeah. him. You know, we talk, we still talk in terms of like someone being a man of their word or, you know, we, we have these sorts of folk ways of understanding each other that basically broadly for most people involve a degree of almost like background trust because we have to live in a world in which we 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 do to some extent trust that other people well are fundamentally good i can <laughs> i can doing... riff on that by <laughs> saying in america when the idea of uh black victimhood is really turned up, at least at the Evergreen State College. And then during the George Floyd riots, there was this myth that a black person couldn't step outside of their home without getting assaulted directly immediately by a police officer, right? So when when you start to think of yourself as always in a completely purely untrustable world, mm. a bunch of uh, neuroses it's just it's not psychologically healthy so on a certain level it's probably just healthier to assume uh the best or at least assume some sort of generally positive goodwill uh toward other people and from other people um just to function happily right yeah i mean it, i i think we we implicitly do like if we buy a product right we generally assume that it's it's not going to poison us right yeah. we we have faith to some degree in health and safety and in, you know those kind of institutions right without which you could have all kinds of uh exploitation and and i mean you know the third man is a film about what happens when there are no restrictions on things and that you have these kind of unpalatable figures who make money off of selling poison to children you know like yeah. this is right so we do need certain institutions we do need certain regulations right but we how to put it we we if we lived in a totally suspicious world like you, you're suggesting you know that it it is a neurosis right and this kind of fear was encouraged during lockdown like in the uk they actually had a unit that was that existed precisely to encourage fear in the population. It was literally like a fear promotion unit. What was it called? And um, what branch of government? What do you mean unit? <laughs> it was it was part of the part of the government. It was it was called it was literally called something like you know, the the Ministry for Promoting Fear. Um and later on they were all like, Yeah, that was a bit unethical. <laughs> but we felt like we had to do it because, you know, we wanted people to stay in their homes. So they they radically overplayed in adverts and, and things the the risk of of, of COVID and and put lots of moral pressure on people, yeah. you know, the whole you're going to kill grandma stuff. And, you know, they really over it. And certain people who a lot of people who are already, let's say, worried about their health or hypochondriac or neurotic took on this fear for for months, for years. Well, you know, there are still day. people. Yeah. Right. And, and this is um, unhealthy for them mentally. Right. It's unhealthy to, for anybody. And it's. A direct consequence of the, that kind of fear mongering because fear is very very powerful politically and if you govern by fear you can get people to do things but it won't last right it's you would it's much better to govern by consent and in a in a democratically pluralist way rather than get people to do things because they're worried that you're going to kill them if you don't yeah right yeah. because that level of fear just generates ultimately resentment and resistance and you know, the possibility for, for revolution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Without a release valve somehow coming right. along to, to extinguish or express that fear. And that's why in one reading of 2020, those 
protests erupted a couple months yeah. after lockdown um, and were even encouraged by the same people who were fear mongering. Right. It's OK to yes. march in the street because racism is, is a bigger threat than uh, this novel coronavirus. Um, but uh, right. it, it, it allowed at least the youth specifically to you know, release some of the pressure of being bottled up, of being controlled. And then they could the, – the powers of be were really clever in a way to redirect all of that anger at like this nefarious problem of racism rather than their own policies, right? Even though I think that it was all feeding into itself. And then at the oh, other yeah. end of that, what you what you see is that the uh, the powers that be take all of that uh, w popular will to end racism, and then they staff themselves with these huge uh, bureaucratic jobs or bureaucratic people that go around and police other people's speech, police other people's thoughts. So the institution benefits the entire way through. And I don't see how you stop that. I don't see how you stop that. Because the people that end up in those positions of power were selected by the system to promote the system. They're agents of the system, whether they're knowing it or not. Yes, for sure. And I, yeah, I mean, I think on the one hand, you have anarcho-tyranny, which is this idea that basically states governed by a, a you know, combination of um, uh, alternate uh, anarchy and, and alternate tyranny, right? So you let cities burn, yeah. it is a release valve, and then you kind of shut people in the houses, and you just kind of confuse people basically by 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 oscillating. Um, and but you're right that there is a kind of bureaucratic or admin mind that is uh, conformist, that is encouraged by and rewarded by institutions. We see this. I mean, I was in academia for 13 years. It, it was obvious that really that. Yeah. Of all places, academia would act like this? Like, why would academia, this bunch of smart people, you'd think that they'd be <laughs> clever enough to... But what was being rewarded was precisely this kind of admin mind, right? So if you were an academic and you would, you know, your research wasn't going very well, you could sort of become part of the administration and, you know, like head the department and, you know, maybe shut it down or get rid of staff, help management. Like basically you end up working for management. Yeah. At the same time, you have the expansion of HR, like this kind of make work jobs, like these pie chart manipulators, these people who are like, you know, oh, you can't use these words. You know, you must have training to understand that your fellow man is, you know, I don't know, this and that. And you're like, but, but we already know how to, 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 to treat each other, right? Like, yeah. anyway, well, you know, and these why, kind of... In, in your experience for 13 years in mm. academia, which is the seat of this, uh, this kind mm. of vi bureaucratization or this virus of bureaucracy, how did you resist that? Uh, and at what level did you become wary of it? And is that, you think, part of your personality or your previous experience or something that you learned along the way? Like, why would you not get get all the rewards that were offered to you? Yeah, I I don't know. I mean, I'm a very Gen X person. And I think in the 90s, when I went into academia, it was really fun. I mean, I was at Warwick which was a wacky place. I was there just after the kind of absolutely apex derangement that was occurring under Nick Land and Sadie Plant and the Cybernetic Cultural Research Units. And Warwick was a crazy place in the 90s. It Where's was very- Warwick? Uh, Warwick is in the Midlands. It's in the middle of nowhere in, well, it's not, that's not, that's fair. It's not fair. It's between Coventry and Leamington. Okay. It was just a very strange university. It happened to, in the 90s to attract 
they had a conference called Virtual Futures where lots of people would come and take drugs and talk about, you know, the coming internet thing and yeah. whatnot. It was very, it was a very crazy place. And there were lots of very, very interesting people there. And I was very, uh, I don't know, blown away by the people I met and the conversations we had and just the possibility of having intellectual wacky discussions with people like four in the morning uh, about Spinoza and I don't know, can computers. I, can I ask a kind of personal question? Like what was your aesthetic uh, as a college girl like that time? <laughs> My aesthetic? Wow. Uh, I actually... Uh, completely indifferent. Like I, I wore sort of men's clothes, quote unquote, until I was twenty three. So I, I just wore like, you know, I, I was kind of grunt, grunt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was quite grungy, <laughs> cool. to be honest. I didn't. I, I really had this kind of. It, it wasn't such a pressured thing, in because, it wasn't so majestic. The cult, the whole culture. It was much more about like your character and your interests and your personality. Yeah. And of course, you can be nostalgic. Of course, there are things wrong. It was, the nineties was too hedonistic. It set up lots of people for addiction and and other Gen X has huge problems with suicide and you, you know all this stuff. And but 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 at, at the same time, it was great. In you know like. Nobody ever said to me, oh, you wear men's clothes and you, your interests are quite masculine. Do you think you're a man? Like, nobody said that yeah. to me. Yeah. They were more interested in your ideas than your identity. Right. Or yeah. or they thought I was an idiot or whatever. But, like, at least they, <laughs> at least it was on the basis of, of, like, who I was, right? Like, in terms of my interests and, and speech, not what I looked like. So, so I, I guess I had that sort of um, indifference to my appearance at that time because I was much more interested in intellectual matters. Yeah. So what, I just would have... I'm sorry yeah. to get personal, uh, but because we're on the topic, what happened at 23 where did you just like discover your femininity, like some sort of like, yeah, you just got was, a groove back kind of thing going on? Like, I know. I had my groove before. In fact, if okay. anything, I was cooler before. I, <laughs> I think because I was then in like a kind of long-term 10-year sort of, well, ultimately 10-year... Uh, relationship with a guy so I I don't know I hmm. and I moved to London maybe and I got very into like vintage clothes and this kind of like vintage thing. like Victorian or are we talking about like no, the, the 60s like, like, I, so. I was kind of quite into like things that were quite constructivist like the Sovietish sort of design like quite space age huh. like primary colours and angles ge geometrical huh. dresses and stuff Okay. So. That sounds fun. <laughs> yeah. But it wasn't, it was like a bit silly. Like I do regard dress clothes as like dressing up. It's like a kind of silliness, right? There's not, you shouldn't take it too seriously. Like it's just funny. Like it's funny to make people laugh or like go, oh, that's a weird outfit. You know, it's a bit more like amateur dramatics or something. Okay. Were you, were you a theater kid at all? Or you're, no. book, you're the bookish sort? No, but I but I think I'm definitely histrionic. Like I have this tendency, uh, for sure, that I think became more and more prominent as I became older. Like yeah, there yeah. is a performance desire to sort of perform. Okay, uh, well, I think that that's important. I think that that might fill in a little bit of why you would not want to be bureaucratized. There's, right. there's some sort of. I mean, it's of just boring. Like apart from anything else, irony, like I got into philosophy. Yeah. Yeah, because it was it was fun. It was it was so interesting, and I just was like, "Oh my god, great! I could read all these books and have these conversations, and that can be my life," you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, "Wow, this is this is amazing," you know. And 
then it just sort of became not increasingly not like that, not just for me, but for everyone, you know, like every, all these institutions became market oriented. They became businesses. You know, we lost the fee vote. So students ended up borrowing like 50K. I was very involved in trying to keep university education free, like in 2010. And, you know, we, we lost, we lost. And the universities just became more like businesses. And of course, they then they became like every other institution. They were literally bringing in people from industry to become like the vice chancellors. So as opposed to academics, people who had cultural, poetic, you know, literary, scientific backgrounds, they were just bringing in these kind of awful MBAs, management types. Yeah. yeah, and their only job was to shut down departments and save money. Yeah. You know, okay. and it was it just became really unfun. And like, there are some people who like meetings and you're like, why would you like meetings? <laughs> so like, so like at the end, I just basically couldn't go to any meetings. And if I went to meetings, I was just sort of sitting there going like, <laughs> this is like, why, why? You know, and uh it's okay. very bad. So, yeah, yeah I, I sort of, I deinstitutionalized myself, but I think it was always there because of the 90s, I guess. It was, it was more a matter of taste than a positive taste toward fun rather than a negative reaction to authority, perhaps, or maybe a mixture of the two. Or Maybe a mixture. I mean, I think Gen X, because we had some security compared to millennials, and I spend a lot of time talking to my my uh, co-hosts on the LAC, who are uh, Helen Rollins and Benjamin Studebaker, who are who are millennials, and we talk about generational difference a lot. And you know, they I I think they're correct in saying that actually it's millennials who desire structure because their lives are so precarious and so lacking in security uh, any notion of the future any any ability to to buy a house and have a family for many people you know many millennials don't have enough money to do that they're very very worried about their future i think as gen x we had residual benefit from boomers like you know i owned my flat i had free education you know we were the last uh, cohort yeah. to have those benefits that our parents also had to some degree so we have a piece of the pie not as much as the boomers you can look at it it's all uh, statistical at this point you know yeah. the wealth division um but we had so, more wiggle room and yes more of an assumption of optimistic future if you go back to the 90s part of the yeah, nostalgia of the 90s is, is a looking forward uh yeah, I mean, it was the end of history, but it was also <laughs> the possibility for doing loads of things. And everything was up for grabs, I think. But everything was mockable. Our humor was different. Yeah. Like, there was nobody off limits. You know, this is the era of kind of South Park. And I don't know, very extreme. You know, I don't know, Vice, the original Vice. Yeah. Uh, like, everything was kind of like uh, a, a, a target, like in a nice way. Like, this is how we're going to get along, right? We're going to... Yeah. We're going to undermine each other in an ironic and, and gentle and kind way but it's going to be kind of harsh you know yeah and this is this is another form of equality that we've we've lost actually or a kind of democratic playfulness i would say um that actually helps things get along you know once you start once you're able to make a joke about somebody then you're able to be their friend you know yeah one negative aspect I think of Gen X and how we failed millennials, I'm going to opine, mm -hmm. is that we took the institutions for granted and the more creative, free-spirited among us um, treated ourselves as above politics in a way. And so yeah. it kind of blindsided us in the last 10 years because the people who were left over were uh, responding to a need of more order and more you know, yeah. market restrictions. 
I think that's fair. So I, we're kind of I think playing we, catch up. We're like, we're, yeah. we're kind of the boomers. Like, why are you guys taking everything so seriously? You know, but we're kind of coming with this apathetic, ironic attitude that we have to kind of uh, compromise a little bit to get things done. Right. While still giving, like when we enter the culture war, not taking drag queen story hour as the end of civilization, right? <laughs> kind of coming in with a wink and a nod and using ridicule to, to shape a reshape discourse. Mm. Right. No, I, I think that's fair. I, I think we economically benefited and this allowed us to be creative and playful, but it didn't really uh, give us much motivation to think about, yeah, our own contribution to politics. I, I think that's right. I mean, we didn't, you know, we don't have great Gen X politicians, really. Mm. You know, we, we, I abnegated our responsibility at the end of history, I think, um, by, Almost like, I don't know, yeah, like I, I, the ironic distance is definitely part of it. The emphasis on kind of creativity and doing your own thing means that you're not really a team player necessarily. Yeah. Or let alone a statesman, so-called. No. Right. No. And, yeah. and this, did, this did allow institutions to become something other. Like, yeah. I, I guess when I'm in the 90s, I probably just thought, oh, they just exist. Yeah, and they like, run themselves, yeah. Yeah. Like, Why would I go to these meetings? Yeah. Right. And like, who cares? Like, you know, yeah. screw the man. Yeah. Like, I've got things to do. Yeah. Well, at the at the same time, there could be a silver lining in that we are, our generation, generally speaking, are particularly keen to facilitate the formation of alternative uh, experiments mm -hmm. and institutions. Right. We might have the, yeah. the wit, the creativity, <laughs> the outsiderness that can help people who are not being served or who are being uh, increasingly dehumanized by the force of these institutions creating alternative magazines, Although, podcasts. No? Yeah, I, I don't know. But I mean, I'm, I'm just thinking about like, who is successful? I mean, actually, a lot of tech people are Gen X. I mean, I would say Zuckerberg and Elon Musk are both Gen X. And we live in their world. I mean, we, we live in Bill Gates's world, obviously. But mm, yeah. a lot of the I mean, Gen X did go quite hard on the tech, yeah. the internet side of things. And I, I'm not sure like Facebook world was the great, <laughs> the greatest thing our generation. <laughs> I mean, like grunge and Facebook are well done, you know, <laughs> fantastic, good work. Um, yeah, so I don't know, but our, our legacy, yeah, we did create new institutions and new ways of doing things. But I mean, pretty much everything new is bad. Like this is a problem. Like we mm. should probably not do very much. I think we did have a an inclination towards a sort of Zen nihilism. Like if you if you leave before you start doing anything, then you've cut. You're not even playing the game, yeah, right? Yeah, you're like, yeah. you know, like the the whole reality bites. Or like, you know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna get a job. Like I'm not gonna like be part of the system. Yeah. Like why would you do that? Like this this is stupid. Yeah. But but then of course it means that other people like are the system and then you have to live in their world <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, politics it doesn't matter if you're not interested in politics politics is interested right. in you kind of thing yeah yeah or facebook is interested in you or like the internet is interested in you are you um, deeply read in the nick land uh ouvoir i i mean to some degree like and like i said i was at warwick i was you know, very young in 90, you know, I was 18 in 97 compared to the people who were there 
who are much older, who are already, you know, PhD students. And Nick Land left uh, after my first year and I never met him in person, but he was very influential on How? the the Warwick. Like, I really understand him. Like, I try to listen. I'm trying to familiarize yeah. myself with him. I'm more, Yarvin's more my, my frequency, but I know mm -hmm. that they're kind of a binary dark enlightenment kind of progenitors. But I, I think at that time in the 90s, right, you had a lot yeah, of people who were working on... Nietzsche and Deleuze and, um, uh, again, like questions of, of desire, questions of analysis of politics. It was a very materialist approach. I mean, Nick Land's first book is on Bataille. Um, you know, it's a very strange and interesting book. It's it's in the wake of the death of God. You had lots of people who were trying to formulate uh, new kinds of materialism, I guess, mm -hmm. that would um, help them to understand let's say these deeper currents that that exist and whether it's through psychoanalysis this question of desire or will or power or you know these sort of forces that that underlie civilization and culture and all of these sort of grandiose and morality and all of these sort of like top down narratives about how great we are and what progress is so yeah, yeah. there was a kind of darkness a sort of deep kind of um genealogical attempt yeah. post nietzsche yeah. People were reading a lot of Deleuze and Foucault. Uh, they were criticizing Oedipality, so the family. They were criticizing kind of structural ideas of normativity, right? So there was a lot of norm breaking, a lot of interest in transgression, uh, hence the interest in Bataille, uh, a lot of interest in hedonism, like at the, at the level of sex and drugs and, and forms of behavior that were like, you know, uh, yeah, transgressive. Yeah. Uh, well, according transgressive according to the the norms, like of the fifties or something, right? Not well, and, and the, the religious right in America was pretty strong in the nineties too, so that was a force right. to resist. It, yeah, exactly, and that's in a way why the left was very pro free speech, free, free speech, freedom of expression, artistic work. You know, that the, we thought the conservatives were like. I don't know. Backwards. Yeah, boring. like they were the ones yeah. censoring things and burning things and banning things, yeah. right? The left yeah. was against that, yeah. you know, yeah. and we were interested in transgression. And I, so Nick Land at that point wasn't the, the person he is now in the sense of his interest in, well, crypto was not, not a thing, uh, you know, human biodiversity or some of the things that the, the, the I the intellectual dark web are interested in like I but the the precursor, if you like, were there in in the form of a kind of radical critique of everything. Yeah. Right. Like. Okay. Yeah. You know, a, a desire to abolish or transgress norms of of all kinds. You know, whether it be a structures, institutions. Uh, what was the goal of I, that? I mean, I I was there at that mm, time doing the same thing. I had my own goals, but I was, I'm just wondering if you strip all normativity off the world like what are you looking for or are you just do you think that there'll be a free fall or some sort of miraculous emergence of something realer truer truer better bigger more more real yeah it's a good question i think maybe it was partly about trying to find deeper energies and to locate these sorts of flows I mean, it sort of unleashed the flows was a very Warwick 
phrase, like huh. unleash the flows of desire, see where oh, wow. they okay. may lead. I hope there were <laughs> condoms around. That sounds really messy. At least hazmat suits a little bit. There's a lot of bodily fluids going around. I'm just releasing all the flows. I'm sorry to go there, but... No, no, I but, but I think that you actually have this in Deleuze, right? They quote Henry Miller, and he says, I love everything that flows, even menstrual blood. And women are like, oh, my God, you even like menstrual blood? Thanks, that's really kind. Um, but, you know, this... <laughs> You know, this 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 idea that one is like an adventurer or an experimenter. Yes. You know, like the one experiments with on, one's own limits. Yes. To find to find extreme experiences. I mean, perhaps it's this idea of experience. Yes. And it's a post um existentialist thing. It's not quite existentialist, but it's after existentialism and it I think it is this idea, almost like the William Blake idea of, you know, the the um the road of excess leads to the palace of wisdom yes. or you know, the, 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 an embrace of extreme modes of, of behavior, extreme states will tell you something that breaks you out of, of the norm or, or breaks you out of yeah. structures, Yeah. you know. And this is very Foucauldian as well, right? People were reading Foucault, Deleuze, Bataille, you know. They were also trying to link it to kind of new forms of materialism, evolutionary biology as well. Like lots of people were trying to plug these things together. Yeah. Like, yeah. how do we have a scientific philosophical materialism that is also uh, experiential and... What uh, do you mean by extreme? materialism, just for yeah. sake of definition? Yeah, I, I, I suppose if you like at, at its base, it would be to start with matter, right? So rather than to assume the existence of a transcendent God, creator, rather to deal with the world as it is like but i will talk about base materialism obviously you have historical materialism in, in marxism um which is you know also anti-religious it's to say look let's look at the real processes right what are the real forces operating in the world how do we get rid of idealism how do we get rid of transcendence that the idea or the fantasy that uh everything tends towards the good and actually look at the kind of horror and the base reality you okay. know whether that's matter in the the sense of nature you know non-human uh nature um you know schopenhauer points out that like nature is very violent i mean we know it is right when you look at he talks about the the, the lion killing the gazelle and the you know the delights of the the violent animal and yeah. you know and that then in a way we are subject to to these forces right this will this desire that that in a way we we can't transcend our own nature which is in some ways very base right and and civilization as freud points out after nietzsche is the the process of sublimating our baser desires right it has to be we have to repress there has to be strategic repression for anything to get done yeah. otherwise we just sort of fly around like yeah. i don't know masturbating and eating and killing or whatever i mean i don't believe this to be true actually but at least this is a you know, there's an aspect of, of all of us, which is... Athens could animal. only support one Diogenes at a time, right? <laughs> right. And I, I, yeah, I think a lot of people thought of themselves as Diogenes, maybe. Yeah, yeah. This is what happened. Strategic repression. Yeah. Did you just come up with that? That's a good one. Yeah, it's quite good. I think it's, yeah, it's a way of understanding what we all have to do, right? Like, you know, there, there are things I would like to do, but I... I can't, and I shouldn't. It's yeah. better for everyone that I don't. Same goes for everybody, right? I like the idea yeah. of, of stripping... Um, you, were, you were talking about stripping the transcendental, but stripping the... Uh, not the supernatural, but the... Uh, 
what's it called? Superstitious mm-hmm. from analysis. And one thing that is a tendency for us to do as public intellectuals or people who are trying to make sense of the world is to assume conspiracy is to uh, trying to strip away that. I don't know if materialism, Mm -hmm. I would, I would call myself materialism. I have a deep seated resistance to that term because I'm not a materialist, but when I try to analyze what is happening, why is it wrong? Why is it bad? Is it inevitable? How do we change things? How do we fix things? Right. How do we, how do we resist, um, you know, living in pods and eating bugs if we want to go in that direction and trying to do that with the least amount of conspiracy um, mindset while still allowing for the fact that there are very powerful people who are all in it to get away with as much as possible. You know, when the WEF, you know, comes out, we need to restrict uh, people's thoughts and we need to get the uh, human population down to 70 million or something like, or 5 million or whatever like that. You're like, wait, that's kind of genocidal. Um, that's, there's gotta be conspiracy there somewhere. Or like the COVID thing, like, why are we now throwing out the Nuremberg code? Like what's, what's going on with that, you know, and trying to, so I, I guess when you look at this stuff, I'm, I assume that you bring multiple kind of analytical tools to it. What are kind of some of the, romantic things that you have to kind of push down in yourself in order to have a clearer head when trying to communicate what's going on in these very complex domains. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, conspiracies are real. Conspiracy is literally just a group of people deciding to do something. Right. So, so I think, you know, conspiracy theory is, is, is often used to dismiss, uh, legitimate questions. I mean, many people had very legitimate questions around COVID and many of them were proved to be correct. Uh, many people did say that the elites engaged in various forms of blackmail and paedophilia. Uh, Epstein proved this to be correct. Uh, you know, it's, 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 it's one thing to be suspicious. It's another thing to be kind of paranoid. Paranoia is a pathological state. Mm. I think paranoia can be a useful analytic tool. Like sometimes I don't like smoking weed, but sometimes I will remind myself like once a year of what it is to be paranoid and then like think about things from that state. Like it's yeah. a kind of way of seeing huh. the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, so so I think it can be very useful, but but you wouldn't want to get stuck there, but you wouldn't want to get stuck in various pathological moods either, like anxiety, okay. fear. I, so I see these as like prisms for seeing the world, yes. like different moods are, are, you know, and the more you can kind of bear in mind at once, the greater uh, strength you have. This is what Nietzsche says, right? It's the capacity to bear multiple truths at once, right? Nietzsche is not against truth. He's against the reduction of truths to one truth, right? This is this is what he says, that basically, you know, the capacity to see the same thing from different perspectives yeah. is, if you like, the expansion of knowledge. It's the expansion of our own power, right? Yeah. We can look at a tree and see it as a home for birds. We can see it as wood. We can see it as a beautiful object. You know, we can see it poetically, scientifically. So there are all these different ways of seeing things, right? The same thing. I think we do have to pay very great attention to what people with power say that they're doing, what they want to do, and what they actually do. You don't need uh, a whole lot of other baggage, right? Like Occam's razor, like the simplest story is usually the correct one, to, to understand that people have very different ideas about what the world is and their place in it. And some people do have a lot more power than others yeah. to to make decisions. And so I I would... Basically, this is why I wouldn't restrict speech 
you know, I'm against censorship. I'm against all, all of what we saw, the shutting down, whether I'm socially or actually like the Twitter files did reveal things. Yeah. They weren't, it's not just nothing. You know, you, you get like the FBI saying we need to close down, you know, Groiper Princess 72, who's got like three <laughs> followers because this person is like questioning the lockdowns. And you're like, oh, my God. Right. Yeah, yeah. So somebody they do really they actually really do care, it seems. Yeah. Right. This yeah. is not it's not a. Uh, uh, you know, it's it's not wrong to be strategically paranoid. Maybe this is all oh, about yeah, strategy, yeah, 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 right? Yeah. You know, it, it because it's it's very obvious that certain ideas are not palatable at particular moments to people who who are in power. Yeah. You know, and and look at the push towards transgenderism and transhumanism. I mean, these are real forces. They're they're financial. They're political. They're personal. You know, these are in, institutions have been captured. There is a lot of pushback, right? But it is, it's, it is a war. It is a battle over the meaning of words, right? Politics is also a battle over the meaning of concepts. This is yeah. what philosophy is about, really. It's about analyzing concepts and saying, well, what do we mean by justice? What do we mean by war? What do we mean by woman? What do we mean by truth? Does it ever right? go the other way from kind of? the liberation of definition or the encroachment of uh, certain transgressive ideas. Does it ever, does society ever revert? I guess you did mention that there will be a blowback, but what do you foresee? Like with the, the transgender stuff, I, you know, there's people who, I, I know a lot of people who are wrestling with it and trying to uh, sure. fight against the, um, on the, at the very least, allowing a child to mature before you uh, hook them up to medication for the rest of their life. Yeah, in the for very God's least, sake. In the very least, right? Yeah, I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah. But that's the progressive idea. Like, does it ever go back? And how does it go back? Do we ever retain that? Does that genie, you know, ever go back in the bottle? Does Pandora's well, I, box ever, you know? Yeah, I, I, so. but I think we have to, to, to acknowledge that we're in a war. We, we don't know. We're in this war at the moment. Yeah. Right? It's I I can't tell you what the outcome of this you know okay, yeah. battle will be right but I I think that and maybe because I choose to be optimistic right I don't know if I'm fundamentally an opt optimistic person but I choose repeatedly to be optimistic right because I have that capacity to decide my outlook in general right yeah. it's very you can do this it's very interesting if you just repeatedly decide to be in a certain mood. Sartre says this. Sartre says you can choose your moods, right? We're not just subject to external forces. This is what nihilists want you to think, actually, that you are not capable of okay. uh, taking yourself in hand, right? And this is part of my uh, break with the, with the left as it became, right? Not the left I knew, but the left became just this kind of guilt field, like this incredibly nihilistic death cult. Like everything became, but people are dying you know, and you must feel guilty for having a job or like having any kind of privilege, so-called, you know, which isn't what privilege means. Um, you know, and it, it became absolutely stultifying. Like you can't act, you can't even fix yourself if somebody is telling you you have reason to be depressed, right? Because the world is shit and capitalism is evil. And, you know, yes, drink yourself to death, right? Because that's how things are, right? Well, go, it's very, go and, very, very uh, dumb. burn down a bridge and... Uh, right out. it's it's yeah. sort of destructive right it's destructive of individuals of groups and of the world you know it's a kind of 
uh, it became this anyway. It became a kind of violent alienation or a kind of active nihilism in many ways, as Nietzsche talks about, you know, their active and passive nihilism. And I think so. And this wasn't the constructive left. This wasn't the socialist, kind, compassionate left that talked to everyone and was like, you know, men with beards drinking real ale in pubs and, you know, saying, oh, we should, you know, redistribute the wealth, right? And we need to think about class. That was not that. It was something else. It was like a death cult. And, (laughs) you know, and yeah, it was like defending, mutilating children and whatnot and in the name of progress. And you're like, what the, you know, no, like this, this is not healthy, like on some basic level. Um, You know, this is this is awful and even evil, to be honest. And I think. Yeah. So your your first line of resistance to nihilism is optimism. It begins with you. The first line of resistance to the ills of society begin with you. That's where you. I think the contemporary left is very resistant to thinking about the individual and the individual's capacity to make improvements in their own life, which is why the field has been left wide open for self-help on the so-called right. I, again, I don't think, for example, Jordan Peterson is right wing. I think he's a kind of Jungian Christian person, you know, whatever. He's not particularly right wing. He quasi-Christian, whatever he is, you know, it's, but it's very basic. What are you saying? And, but the, the, the field has been left wide open, right? For men in particular to come along and say quite rightly to other men, the way you're living is unhealthy. You know, you can take steps not only to uh, improve your chances of getting a girlfriend, but also just to improve your life, right? To become um, less a passive vector of forces mm, and more yeah. just somebody who, who looks after themselves and takes responsibility for themselves. It's so who, basic, Who right? is but significant in their own right. Yeah, to, to themselves, apart from anything else, right? And it's obvious that there is a communal aspect or a consequence of this. Is like, if you look after yourself, you are better able to look after other people. Right. So there is a social or even socialist aspect to taking care of yourself as difficult as it is. Right. I'm not saying that it's easy. It's a struggle for everybody to look after themselves. Right. It's really hard. Right. Life is suffering. Life is full of disappointments and, you know, awful things. And you have to be grateful for what you have. Right. This is another thing that the contemporary left can't do is be grateful because everything is bad. Everything is structurally awful. Yeah. You know, and so, you know, Christianity has lots of great concepts. Even if you're not Christian, it has forgiveness, gratitude, atonement. Someone else is like, die for your sins. You're a bit simple, but it's okay. That means you can't judge other people completely because you yourself are also broken. Yeah. You know, it's good. Like, it really worked, you know, yeah. as a social technology. And we're in this post-Christian age where we've reverted back to very Manichaean idea of good and bad. You know, there are good and bad people. And I want to be a good person because everybody wants to be a good person. So if I just say the right things and I don't do anything wrong and I walk around in fear with loads of guilt, right? Maybe I'll be good. Maybe people will think I'm good. And look, there are these bad people. They have the wrong ideas. We can, we're allowed to hate them, right? We can take out our own sadness and frustration on these people because they're bad, right? These women think that men can't become women and that children should be protected. We can hate them. You're allowed have, to hate them. Have you seen anybody that you know personally revert from that mindset? Like that was really in that mindset and then woke up or changed? 
I don't want You mean in which direction does it work? Uh, yeah, in the in the direction toward gratitude and away from envy. Yeah, I, I think a lot of people have. I, I think this is a really common thing that's happened actually. I, I think a lot of people have realized that the you know, to, to be in nihilism is, is untenable. I think a lot of people like it to use the pill metaphor. I mean, there are no pills, but oh, I mean, there are pills, but you shouldn't take too many pills, especially bad ones. But anyway, I mean, I have, I have my supplements here. I have like a sort of, I don't know, broccoli. Collagen? Seed. Broccoli? It's, 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 it's like your these spicy system. eyes or something. No, it's just like a, it's just like a vegetable thing. It's fine. Anyway. Uh, but okay. anyway, like, yeah. but you know, people can be like nature pill. They suddenly go like, oh my God. You know, look at the world, look at nature. It's okay. incredible, right? Yeah. Or they can be like white-pilled, you know, the optimism thing, or God-pilled, or... I don't know. Like, people have encounters or experiences, I think, that wake them up to the fact that their life ha does have meaning and that there is a world, you know, and that there are other people in it, and it's great. Or there's a lot to be interested in. There's a lot to be moved by. There's a lot to admire and love, as well as all the bad things. You know, it's everything is mixed. Every this is we published this piece in Compact by a Gambin about the Benedict, you know, the the, the former Pope who resigned. Yeah. And and a Gambin made this very interesting point about the resignation in, in twenty thirteen that this was a critique of institutions. This was Benedict saying that every institution is riven by both good and evil. This is a fun to go back to this point. It's a fundamental question or an issue that we all have like we're all good and bad therefore institutions are good and bad yeah. right that they they exacerbate tendencies because institutions are us right they seem to become something else yeah yeah, yeah. because we reify them but they really are people <laughs> i um i don't know i'm thinking about this and i don't want to misspeak but uh there's this uh well-spoken atheist in California named Sam Harris. He uh, was part of the new atheist movement. And a few months ago, he was interviewed by people who have interviewed you and me and that I've interviewed on my show. I don't know if you've interviewed uh, 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 the Constantine and Francis, but um, he was on trigonometry and he, mm -hmm. he came out with this really weird kind of string of thoughts about President Trump. And uh, there's a lot of analysis or a lot of blowback that he got, but it seemed like he had such a, an existential faith in the institutions and Trump was an existential threat to these institutions. Like he, mm -hmm. it, it, I, I opined and it's probably wrong. And I got pushback on this, that it was the state is his religion. Like he, his faith is put in the process in yeah. these institutions and I have a hard time thinking in that way. So I can't really get my head around why he would believe so strongly in that and still be an atheist too. Um, so there's, there's a lot of contradictions. <laughs> that's why he's an atheist, because there's nothing outside this world, right? So he has to believe in institutions because institutions are the limits of his world, right? This is, this was revealed, I think in the co in the lockdowns, Okay. basically the state for people who are not religious, who don't have any sense of spiritual, it doesn't even have to be, doesn't have to be Christian. It just can be any other way of thinking about the world. So, so actually to go back to the materialism point, what you actually have is, is a kind of institution based materialism, which means that people have to put their faith in these things because they have nothing else. 
Right. So Agamben made this point about the contemporary Pope. He said, why isn't the Pope going to visit people by their bedside? Right. If the Pope believes in God, if the Pope is part of a spiritual world, a different world, a world that is not the biopolitical regime, is not the state. Right. Why is he adhering to these earthly rules? It's a very good question. Right. And I think for, for those people who have worked themselves into this position where there is only the state, there is only institutions, they have to believe in them because to not believe in them is to experience a form of like, I don't know, depression and loss and nihilism that they can't really countenance. You know, what would it mean to think that institutions are not working in your best interest? It's pretty bleak, right? You have to go through it. You This, this process of suspicion and mistrust is uncomfortable. It is very hard. This is why a lot of people don't want to do it. They have suspicions that things aren't right or that there are questions that need to be asked or that certain people are pushing agendas that are actually maybe not great, that are maybe causing harm. But they don't really want to think about it because to think is very painful at the best of times. Hmm. And then to stand up to things that are going on, that people are saying, no, this is great. This is progress. This is what we want, you know, is even harder. Yeah. So then it comes out in these outbursts, like these hateful outbursts, like you're allowed to hate Trump. You're allowed to hate turfs. You're allowed to hate blah, blah, blah. white men. You're allowed to hate incels. You know, you're allowed like the liberal media, you know, it always works like this. You, you're allowed to hate certain groups, but you have to revere other groups. Yeah. You know? What, why, why that group thinking? Why is that baked into so-called uh, the, the prevalent media, the mainstream, the liberal media? Like, why is that group thinking there? It's a very easy way of controlling people. It's a form of just divide and conquer. You know, if you make people into enemies... Could it not also control. be uh, the byproduct of believing in the state? Because the state, the bureaucracy, treats people as either units or as groups. It, it, it seems yeah. like in order to believe in the state, you have to take on how the state believes in you, right? So group, demographic. Right. So, I mean, Alan Badu, this philosopher I worked on a lot a long time ago, you know, he points out that from the standpoint of the state, like everything is countable. Like we live in the era, like completely of like numbers. Quantity, yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Like Grenon talks about the reign of quantity. You know, everything is measurable. Like, you know, we're data, right? Like go online and like, you know, everything's harvesting your data, blah, blah, blah. Right. So, so we live in this, you know, quantitative way, but this doesn't exhaust who we are, right? As split beings, as, as, you know, mixtures of, of ambivalence of, and so on. You know, we're, we're ultimately poetic Hunger, as. Yeah. As well, yeah, like we're, we're lacking, you know, sometimes we're hungry, sometimes we want to write a poem, sometimes at the same time. Uh, so uh, how, how to put it? So, yes, from the standpoint of the state, you you can be counted, right? But this doesn't exhaust your capacity or your potentiality or your character or who you are. Um, and I think the problem with state taking on the thinking of a state is that you, yeah, you, you have to believe that you are the state, somehow that the state is you you know yeah. and that I and my father state, are one yeah. yeah yeah you know that there's no rivet there's no gap yeah you know which is why people went to bat for the covid rules you know why they became police you know and i, I think we see this it's a tendency it's a deep tendency in authoritarian regimes and we need to learn 
the lessons of history. We need to look at the Stasi. We need to look at states where policing was encouraged and people spontaneously took it upon themselves to report their neighbours, usually over questions of envy. Yeah. You know, yeah. it wasn't political. It was just an opportunity yeah. to punish people yeah. for, like, being loud or having sex or enjoying themselves or whatever. You so know, and... <laughs> This is this is a hard circle to square for some people, um, people who are atheists and who have thought themselves through atheism and, and are very rational, nice people, nothing wrong with them at all, but mm -hmm. they are atheists. But in the case of what we were talking about with regard to Sam Harris and believing in the state, if you are, if you take a strictly material world, you end up believing in process and state. It seems like embedded in the word atheism is this post-belief kind of human, this human that doesn't need to believe in anything greater, higher, or more. And that doesn't seem possible to me, that people are believing mechanisms. Why do you, th if you agree with that, why do you think that is? And how do we foster that? Or how do we relate to our belief? Yeah, I mean, I think it was interesting. There was a sort of series of tweets from um, Charles Murray recently in which he basically said, I don't know if you saw them, but he basically said, look, I've, you know, I've been a scientist, a scientific man for, for decades, and I now have come to the conclusion that we human beings can't live without some form of religion, right? Quite interesting move, right? Like, I think, uh, you know, that, yeah, that I remember that whole new atheist stuff. It was crazy. I mean, it was extremely anti-Islam. It was very pro-war. It was kind of an awful moment. Like people running around calling themselves bright because they were more intelligent because they didn't believe in God. Today was, I was, am euphoric. Yeah. <laughs> no, it was. There was some like weird, crazy moment where it was like, you know, those little rubber bands that people used to put around they, their wrists. They had rubber bands too. I, I, they had like I, little... I, I yeah, it was the like, rosaries like, of atheism. Yeah, it, it was. It, it was. It was like this kind of crazy moment of like, yeah, like we're we've eliminated all superstition. We're yeah. you know we, we're going to have a theory of everything. And, and then you know, two years later, they they spawned the social justice cult. Right? Well, maybe I I haven't traced the causation of that, but sure. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I I you know I I think human beings are. are I mean, I'm very interested in the question of when we become human, right? I'm very interested in prehistory and, yeah. and uh, you know, prehistoric monuments and Stonehenge and Avery. And this is sort of the joke about being pagan. Um, it's right. So the question of when we become human. But let's let's say if we use this word. I mean, as Illich says, after Barbara Duden, there are no human beings. There are only men and women, <laughs> which is a very interesting point. There is yeah. no human, if you think about it. But nevertheless... Yeah. I we are constituted by ritual. We have a relationship to our infinitude. We are aware of the fact that we are limited beings. We clearly have a capacity for repeated behaviors, for spiritual recognition or experience, uh, for narrative, a desire for transcendence, for art, for beauty. And these are all there's a war on all of these things, by the way. <laughs> all of these desires and all of these capacities. Yeah, right. because this, this, without those capacities, we're much easier to control. Yes, exactly. And and if you get people to stop thinking that they have a poetic dimension or a spiritual dimension, then yeah, they then people, hmm. you know, you can you can convince them to go along with things, and they will be in a state of nihilism where they passively watch or occasionally actively burn down something in a city, but you know, basically spend most of the time 
just consuming and yeah. not opposing the plans of other people. Again, this is not a conspiracy, right? There are yeah. there are many market interests. There are there are financial. If you want to just trace the money, this is important to do. I mean, people are doing this work, tracing the money behind transgender medicine or behind reproductive technologies, right? They're clearly vested interests. It, it's easy for us to understand that some people just want money. Yeah. Right. We yeah. know that. Yeah. It's a, it is a form of sociopathic behavior, but yeah. is rewarded in a particular system. Yeah. You know, I don't think most people want money. That's not the thing that most people care about. If you ask people what they care about, they care about their family and their friends and where they live. Yeah. yeah. And these are good things. <laughs> yeah. One, one of my counters, and it's still kind of half-baked, and I like it half-baked because half-baked things are gooey and uh, sometimes taste good and sometimes make you sick. Um, but uh, <laughs> one counter to the gender identity ideology is returning to some rudimentary, uh, kind of lighthearted, um, not worship, but honor of man and woman as categories, like like a, a gender positivity, like like the masculine and the feminine, the man and the woman are seats of divinity or are seats of creativity yeah. and have a very powerful ability when they come together and harmonize to create wonderful human beings, not only create human beings bodily, but create wonderful human beings through the, the love and the respect and the balance between those two things. And so I'm not gender critical because I think that gender as a ideal or an aspiration is very useful to give men and women insight into themselves and to each other and then into possible ways of, of blending and, and coming into harmony with each other. And I know that your part of your interest, part of your work has been on masculinity yeah, I mean, I you know, the book What Do Men Want is really about a book about the relationship between men and women, and it's a positive book, right? It's yeah. an optimistic book. It's a, it's a book that says actually men and women get along, <laughs> and they have lovely times, and and yeah. it's playful, and you know this idea. Where did that, that come you know, from? From you? What if that book um, divorcing it from the message, uh, yeah. uh, what it would mean to other people? What what was that a dialogue between you and yourself, you and uh, me love, and reality, you and reality? What do you mean by reality? Like biological my experience, hormones, like my experience okay. of the world. Right. So, you know, yeah. this whole idea that men were toxic and ontologically evil, which is it's just a very bad recapitulation of a stereotype of radical feminism from the 70s, which never really existed. But then oh. liberal feminism somehow yeah. became permission to hate men as a group and you know my father is a very good man my brother is a good man my male friends are very good my partner is very good you know like it just isn't true you yeah. know it's not to say that there aren't men who do bad things and and you know men are at the extremes of the bell curve in every respect so right? why why do you but, love men then to such an extent that you would write a book uh, honoring them like where where does that in different. you in your heart oh Huh. Because men are different, and and but because we have various forms of compatibility, which are extremely pleasurable and interesting, yeah. you know. And I'm not talking uh, fundamentally about sex because I think sex is is a, another form of control. It's it's a dominant mechanism that's very easy to exploit. I'm more interested in 
conversations, you know, and dialogue. It's not to say that sex isn't important. Of course it is. Wait, are you talking you about know, sexuality it, really... sex or uh, biological Sorry, sex gametes? As, sex as a, no, sex as in... Um, Transaction. The between... act. <laughs> yeah, okay. All right, all right. Right. So, so you know, we live in a, a culture that's dominated by the idea of sex uh, as, as something desirable and all-encompassing. Yeah. It's not that important, right? It's it's important if you want to have a family, yeah. right? But it, it's, it's huh. encouraged, you know, it's another form of manipulation, pornography is a form of manipulation uh you know i'm very anti-porn for the reasons that it destroys fantasy you know it destroys our imagination you know we have enough material in our own in our own heads or in our dreams you know to to think about each other in a much more playful way uh we don't need these Im you know these images are themselves horrible they're generated in horrible ways hmm. and they generate horrible feelings in hmm. people who watch it they they generate shame you you know men who often overuse porn end up in shame states they can't interact with the world because they're in this this cloud of shame it's another form of control you know i i do actually believe all the conspiracies around porn actually <laughs> what is, conspiracies, are conspiracies are those that porn is a deliberate mechanism designed to control people's desire and libido and to steer them into particular states of being hmm. that turn them away from being kind of social and good people yeah. um i think i think pornography is extremely powerful images are very very powerful it doesn't mean we should censor them but it means that we should understand their power we shouldn't be blasé or nihilistic about images and yeah. think oh we can take it oh it doesn't matter they're just not real yeah. right most of the time they are real <laughs> and they have real effects yeah. and you can create forms of numbing and shame through the repetitive use and we know that pornography for a lot of people is um progressive as in people need like harder and harder pornography to you know you're you, john Euler was talking about pornography to some extent right yeah, the yeah. It, it's a very dangerous force so leaving aside the kind of negative <laughs> aspect what i'm interested in is that is the the positive playfulness the light-heartedness that's possible <laughs> between men and women and i think the otherness of men men and women i do think it's cosmic i think it's like amazing yeah, yeah. you know our infinite differences and i have lots of male friends who i have fantastic conversations with and you so know. you you write a book about what men want and i'm sure there's an assumption that men want women so there's then that leads to the question like what is what is what does a woman do to be good to men like or or the other side of the coin and it's men need to be good for women and women need to be good for men what did you discover or what have you learned over the course of your life about being a woman uh, to men and, and uh, uh, I guess uh, evoking the uh, positive otherness and releasing the energies uh, through the heterosexual uh, discourse. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, obviously the title of the book is a joke. It's a joke about Freud because Freud famously says, what does woman want? And he can't answer it. So yeah. I was like, oh, I'm going to reverse Freud's yeah, yeah. title. But anyway, it's so... I do ask men in the book, I ask my friends and some of them say pussy, some of them say beer, some of them say a shed, you know, <laughs> yeah. one of them says to be a good man, whatever. Like it's jokey, it's like yeah. playful in that sense. But I, you know, I think fundamentally before we are good to each other, we have to be good to ourselves and good for ourselves, hmm. right? And this is very difficult in a, in a sort of godless world that doesn't really value virtue. So to even discover the capacity to be better, to be slightly better, Right. This is all you can do, I think. But this is very optimistic, actually. It's like rather than being 
lots of people have perfectionism issues. Like, oh, if I'm not perfect, if I haven't got this job, then everything is screwed, right? This is a nihilistic position, right? What you can do, it's very minimal, but you can do it. You can slightly improve yourself, <laughs> Yeah. right? That's all you can do. But you have to do that in the first place, right? It's It's not fair to burden other people with your crap, right? It's not to say you can't deal with your crap with through help from your friends and family sometimes people need that like i've had various crises hmm. in my life very serious ones and you know health wise otherwise addiction wise it's you know everybody suffers everybody suffers full stop so sometimes people suffer more than others sometimes people are in very great health or mental health issues sometimes they never get out of them right we 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 try to help people we care about and love and sometimes the way we do that is not by um, sorry, my camera is not by letting them carrying on doing it. Sometimes we have to be really tough with yeah. people. Yeah. It's very difficult to do this to intervene, actually, because it's the person will hate you for doing it if you're trying to get someone to stop. Yeah, they might not even they... stick right, right, without exactly. their it's, consent. Or their, it's very risky, yeah. actually. But anyway, I think ultimately a lot of people get to the point where they're like, oh, I need to deal with my own stuff one way or another. Right. Yeah. However, you work out how to do it. And it's usually quite similar things. It's usually don't do the thing that I, you know, makes me addicted and makes me a dick. You know, don't do like don't eat the food that makes me feel like crap. Try to eat as healthy as you can. Drink water. Go to see, you know, it's really basic. But it is. But this is true. Like we have these particular bodies. Part of the fantasy of this consumerist individualistic society is that we don't have any limits and that we can do whatever we want to ourselves because we want to do it. But we don't we have strict limits. Yeah. Right? Our bodies are not infinitely malleable. They become very unhealthy if we do unhealthy things to them. This is just a fact. It's inescapable. We're not separate from our bodies. You know, so yeah. it, it's stuff like that. You know, we are our bodies and it's very basic, but that's why I mean that space has been taken over by, by people who make a lot of money off of saying very basic things. Yeah, and it's fair enough. Yeah, you need yeah. someone to do it, and it should be your parents, it should be your church, it should be your community, ensuring that everyone's okay. But it it's hard to do that when everyone is atomized and individualized. Um, Anyway, sorry, I forgot your question. It was something different, actually. But um, Well, you brought up my conversation with John Euler being long and meandering, and here we are. I know, oh dear. Yeah. I, I don't want to take up your whole evening, because I'm sure you have uh, a club to go to <laughs> pretty soon or something. <laughs> Maybe Civ, a game of Civ 5. No, I have to do some work for the magazine. But um, I do love Civ 5. With, oh, really? Civ 5, not 6. Civ 5. Five, come on, man. Okay, okay, all right, all right. I tried six, and I'm like, I, I already spent 200 hours in five. I don't need to do six again. Um, Only 200 hours. It's nothing. No. There's probably a lot like more. I don't know. Elden Ring really ate up a ton of 2022. I'll, t I'll leave that much. That game. No, really I, I, <laughs> I think computer games should be should be rationed. They should be, you know, yeah, occasional, um, like most things. Yeah. Well, yeah. Everything in moderation, including moderation. Some people aren't spiritual because they haven't had spiritual experience, and some people are spiritual mm -hmm. even though they haven't had a spiritual experience. What about you? Like, why is there a reality to that to you, if you don't mind? I don't know. I think a whole series of things. I think, you know, maybe encountering some very wacky ideas. I used to suffer from insomnia terribly as a child, oh, so really? I spent a lot of time 
yeah, it was awful. Uh, you know, and why your I, mind was just running? I don't know. His it was just like that for for years, and and so you know, I'd spend a lot of time just in these very strange and extreme states, and and often in these like twilight states, I guess. And then, you know, I I had very like extreme repeated experiences with with drink and 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 uh i don't know politics and mental health and i don't know like philosophy itself is is very extreme right like you 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 entertain a lot of very wacky ideas yeah, yeah. if you get really into philosophy and I, and you get better at it you get more and more interested in in thinking through unthinkable things potentially yeah. not to destroy them but really often to protect them to protect concepts or to clarify concepts yeah. it's not a destructive discipline. philosophy with a hammer kind of it's actually a tuning fork yeah oh, everybody okay. gets it's, it's the translation is wrong Nietzsche oh. doesn't philosophize with a hammer it's a tuning fork what so he yes yeah, so he he takes the the I you know, I blew up my entire pitch. life in my twenty as a twenty one year old because of mistranslation. Are you serious? Yeah. <laughs> oh, gosh. No, no, seriously. I I was taught this. I went to work and we had this great teacher, Martin Warner, and he said, "Look, you've got to understand. It's not a hammer. It's a tuning fork." So so Nietzsche is talking about diagnosing, right? T taking the pitch of the era, right? Nietzsche diagnoses nihilism. He's not a nihilist. Yeah. You know, this is very important. It's it's to it's like to analyze something is not to defend it or to 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 criticize it necessarily. It's like to take the the measure, like ding. Yeah. What does our age sound like? Yeah. It's on a hammer. That's that's. But with all these things, you you mentioned drink and thoughts and insomnia, yeah. but. Uh, and and the other question is, you have all these different lenses. There's got to be a core to you, or there's got to be a relationship that you've had to tend with your core in order to not be a whack job or completely dissociated, completely like some bug-eyed, like everything's a million different views and angles. Or are you just, you are the panopticon? Like you, uh, no, you I, I, no, of course not. I, uh, I, I don't know, though. I, I. I would say I, I, I probably have had a lot of very extreme experiences that I, I myself have, have put myself through, and and some I haven't, I guess, and yeah. and not more than other people necessarily. But I've also structured my life in such a way that I don't have many responsibilities, even though I think responsibilities are very good. I just don't think they're for everybody. So I know, <laughs> and I think it's also responsible sometimes to realize that you're not the kind of person huh. who should take on certain responsibilities. Like okay. I'm banned from driving. There are loads of things I shouldn't do. Oh, right? even like, self-driving cars. You don't have a Tesla or like some oh, sort of. I know we didn't. Oh, it wasn't like that in the nineties. Okay. I don't know. Anyway, but oh, okay. like some people, and it's okay, right? Like some people shouldn't have certain responsibilities, and it's better. And it's always been like this: that there are some men and women who don't have families and don't have children, and that's okay. Like whether they're monks or nuns, or you know, when they're not forced into it, obviously, yeah. uh, you know, compelling people to to not have children is, is bad. But we, this is a very complicated question to solve socially and i don't think the state should be giving people wives or whatever this is not going to solve the problem <laughs> is that a thing uh that's a right-wing uh, male oh, yeah, fantasy isn't it yeah yeah yeah. Oh, yeah, some yeah. People, some people want this yeah. uh you know the the state wife uh or whatever but um anyway no so but uh how, how to put it 
I, I suppose I, I am interested in the kind of foundations that follow from extreme thoughts or, or thinking about what it is that reality is composed of and um, hmm. whether that's in dialogue with with friends or through various altered states. Uh, yeah, I I return to things anew, I suppose. Yeah. I, I think my core is fundamentally me at 15 or something like that. It's 15-year-old huh. me. I feel like I haven't really huh. aged in you, you peaked and plateaued at 15. I, I sort of became who I... I became who I am or was and still am at 15 somehow. It's hard to explain. I can see Uh, it. I'm stuck there in some ways. Hmm. One day you'll (laughs) wake up, you'll be an 85-year-old wise woman, but you'll have skipped the intervening 70 years somehow. We are all of our different ages. Like, it's very interesting. If you get very high and you look at your friend, you can see them at, like, seven different ages. It's really cool. Yeah. You know, you're like, oh, I see boy you and, and old man you and, you know. Yeah. 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 <laughs> no, I, I work with kids and I see the adult and, and the kid. And then when I hang out with adults, I see the, the kid and the adult. You can see, you can see that yeah. if, you, if you look. Yeah, it's cool. So uh, evidently you consume content. You, you've mentioned that you've listened at least to one of my shows, but what do you do when you're listening to podcasts? What What is your activity while you're consuming? Well, while actually, I mean, podcasts are a bit difficult because most of my work is to do with writing and editing. Yeah. So I can't listen to, to words, no. but um, I, I watch, I, I guess I watch like Sam Vaknin and stuff, you know, this guy, like he, no. he gives these, well, he, he also talks about um, psychopathy and narcissism, but he's a kind of diagnosed narcissist, a very intelligent man, Israeli uh, guy. He, he, he'd he been in prison for fraud, but he's now a professor of psychology. He does Why these not? very interesting videos yeah. that are like from the inside of these huh. tendencies. What's his name pathologies. again? Sam Vaknin, uh, V-A-K-N-I-N. Okay. I don't know. I like I, so I, I watch some of these before I go to bed sometimes. Oh, but, okay. Uh, <laughs> he does like a video mind. every day. <laughs> yeah, some people are I like that. So. Yeah. Uh, but I don't know. I mean, I listen to a lot of music. I guess I, okay. I listen to. I'm just NTSO. wondering if if you if you set aside like the John Euler conversations three hours. So I'm just wondering, are you yeah. jogging? Do you have a treadmill? Like one of those rowing machines? No, are you I, knitting? I that like, over what are you the doing? Course Oh, this is like research for your show. I watched the that show over the course of two nights, okay. but with lots of pauses to think about what he was saying. Okay, I guess. Okay. It oh, so you just you devoted your attention to it. You didn't need any yes. distractions. Not even Civ Five playing in the background. No, not at all. And I don't huh. often play Civ Five. Um, no, no, no. I I try to like focus on whatever it is that I'm doing. I don't, okay. you know, I don't like the multiple distractions. Okay. You know, it's like I listen to music, or I mean, I do listen to music and write, but. They sort of play off each other, maybe. But uh, yeah, if I'm if I'm watching a YouTube video, I watch it really carefully, often with subtitles, or you know, just to like get everything at point five speed. Do you like really just slow it down and just no, <laughs> no, no? I like the pitch, the normal pitch yeah. of things. But yeah. Uh, yeah, it's like about gesture and character. Yeah, 
interested yeah. in these things. That's why I post so. the video. I think it's really important, the faces and the and the Yeah. Interplay. I mean, you'd make yeah. a great psychoanalyst because you kind of compel people to speak. Do I? In your... Yeah, yeah, because you exude this kind of... Com like, I didn't even realize that conversation had started. You know what I mean? It's like you were recording and I was like, oh, maybe I should not... I should just be like, oh, more like I'm being recorded. But... um. But yeah, anyway, no, no, because you have a certain kind of uh, gentle and open passivity, which encourages people to speak, which is what you get with a lot of psychoanalysts. So mm -hmm. if you, if you wanted to retrain as a psychoanalyst. Yeah, I think about that. But then like, I, I don't think I'd make it going back to school at this point. I'd probably get canceled Why? pretty quick. Because academia is academia. I uh, wouldn't be, I wouldn't be uh, too, like, yeah, I, I go back and forth on this. Yeah, I, I think it's... But if you're doing something specialist, which is like a skill, yeah. and, 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 you know, psychoanalysis proper is not about judgment, right? Like there's a lot of discussion about therapy and a lot of the criticisms of therapy are really good because they're basically, of course, therapists are ideological and some therapists are, you know, pr promoting the ideas of the regime, if you like. And what works for women doesn't work for men. There's lots mm. of discussion about this. You know, therapies are very feminized. It would actually be great to have more men in, in, in analysis or therapy hmm. but but ideally the therapist is not judgmental the analyst is certainly not judgmental in the lacanian or freudian sense right because you know you're trying to let the other person's unconscious speak this is the agreement if you like hmm. you know lacan says psychoanalysis is what happens when two people agree not to have sex <laughs> right so you're in this relation which is purely yeah. okay. uh, yeah. about talking and listening yeah you know yeah. and you know, some people are better at listening than others. It's a skill, obviously. Um, or a burden. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you can weaponize your, your, your listening. Yeah. Parlay it into, you know. Power, <laughs> prestige. Yeah, employment. <laughs> well, your self-employment, I guess. You're employing yourself. Yeah, at the time being, yeah. Um <laughs> so speaking of employment, what's coming up next for you? So let, let, let's plug your products. You have various podcasts that you produce. One for uh, I have some holy water. We'll sell you in this glass. For okay, him. yeah, it's from <laughs> the <laughs> plains of Spain or something. It's from the puddles of Wiltshire. <laughs> um, no, I uh, no. Well, I'm working for Compact. You know, this great magazine. I would say subscribe to Compact if you are interested in these these dialogues, these dis discussions between people on the the serious left. I would say uh, the theory critical center, the conservative right, the religious. You know, people. Uh, yeah. It's a uh, very heterodox, in the best possible way. It's the kind of dialogues I wanted to have. So, anyone interested in liberalism, geopolitics. Culture, politics, art, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so, yeah, Compact is going really well. And so I'm largely working on this. I had to get my head back into having a job as well, right? Because I was basically unemployed for like three years. So it was like, oh, I actually have to do things now. And, oh, wow. You, you, know. you just like floated through COVID? <laughs> yeah. I had wow. to sell like my wires. I, I ran out of money. I, I ended up, because I, I left my job and then I wasn't, well, you sold your wires place. like you were pulling like metal out of your house and selling it on the black market. Oh, not quite that like bad. Some but sort you, know, of you know, like with electrical equipment, like you end up with all this stuff. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. You know, there's a shop on the and that was open, and I could sell like all my wires for like twenty quid. It was pretty bad because <laughs> I was still counted as employed, so I didn't get any grants because they yeah. didn't know I was unemployed. And 
Anyway, it was really funny, but not that funny because being really poor like erodes your soul. And I did have somewhere to live, so I was very grateful for that, right? But I had to like, you know, do other stuff. You were writing a book during this time. You were going on GBN News and and sparring with Piers Morgan and Prime Time. I didn't, not quite. Okay. I uh, I wrote columns for the Telegraph about art and culture. So every time someone pulled down a statue, I became like their statue correspondent. (laughs) So I wrote about thirty columns about. pulling statues down and that was my that was my income huh. and i did some online teaching in this post-academic para-academic world with yeah. justin murphy and these other yeah. great platforms uh so mcap and gcas and you know these actually really took off unsurprisingly during the lockdown because people like in australia who'd been locked in the middle of a desert for like six months were like oh my god i need to speak to people about something interesting yeah. so i taught lots of courses on illich and girard and bataille and angels even got really crazy one on risk uh so on and so that was a bit of income but yeah i wasn't i was kind of yeah free <laughs> and freedom is both liberating and terrifying yeah as we know yeah and and then you, you picked up when did you start with compact so like march april this year okay. so Full-time. we haven't been going for a year yet but yeah it's uh, okay wow yeah so it's, you don't even have uh, time I, for another book? Do you have another book up your sleeve or in the works? Well, I, I think we even discussed this last time I was on your show and you came up with this great idea, which I was going to steal with a citation about Gen X, which was to do with this idea of like, that maybe Gen X can mediate between millennials and boomers. And you had this lovely thought about diplomacy. Huh. And I thought this was great. So um, I was going to write a bigger book about Gen X, but it might be a book about the 90s. I'm not sure. I... It might be something about what can the world learn from Gen X, if anything. And it would obviously be really ironic and humorous and self-critical and silly. Yeah, yeah. A little meta. Uh, a little, yeah. Um, but something something like that. Like, what is our role? And I, I wrote a piece about Gen X for Compact recently in which I looked at various uh, stats, but also, you know, thought about it more poetically. Uh, you know, who who were we? Who are we? What have we done or not what, done? What did you come up with? Well, I looked at various things. I mean, I looked at the the suicide rates, which unfortunately track our generation. So I'm actually kind of interested in this question of why other generations don't kill themselves at the rates that Gen X did. So the median age for suicide was like in the early 20s when Gen X were in their 20s and now it's 40s, 50s, particularly men. I read about male suicide in my book. Yeah. you know, it's so I'm interested in like why that is, why this generation, one of my interests, right? It's not all bleak, but why didn't we develop the same kind of or different protective mechanisms um, against forms of exit, if you like? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it goes down to that primacy of experience that we had. And I think that mm-hmm. it, it, it's high burnout, too. And then also with men just prioritizing experience rather than um, uh, building value, right? Yeah. Because value can be externalized, but experience just like, and then you run out of gumption for it and you don't have anything there. So, Right. So stop. I would say, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, even though I'm talking about extreme experiences and so on, right, I don't necessarily think the decisions I've made in my life are the correct ones. In fact, I think they're not, hmm. right? And I think... That there are, as you say, forms of stability, virtue, relationality, families, tradition that are actually uh, good for the vast majority of people and yeah. should be encouraged because it's, it is actually what most people want. 
you know they don't want people don't want to be screaming naked at the top of a fucking mountain you know some people might want that you know is that where you found your taste in uh, naturally occurring (laughs) bubbly water (laughs) yeah right exactly so you know diving into to springs like sulfuric uh you know no but you, you know it's like those things are important for a reason, right? They, those institutions, if you like, these mm. are the good institutions, mm. <laughs> like the family, you know, and these are the things that the left want to, or the current left, fake left, uh, want to destroy because they want to abolish everything, huh. you know? Why? Why do people want to abolish everything? Antinomianism? What is this urge? Chaos. Yeah, what is this urge? Yeah. Freedom. It's love of chaos. We all have it. We all have it. You know, and it's how you tame the chaos, how you come to terms with your own destructive capacity. Hmm. You know, we are infinitely capable of destruction, all of us. Why do you write poetry? (laughs) Because it is uh, an expression of of freedom and the capacity to be free in some ways. Hmm. I, I think I'm very interested in forms of resistance to machinic ways of being and thinking um you know and and you could do a whole show about ai and (laughs) capture of linguistic capacity and so on i i think poet poetry whether whatever we want to call that is a is an attempt in some ways or can be seen as an attempt to to break the shackles of a habitual relation to language which is not to say it's completely without bounds in fact it is constrained as well like it, nothing follows without constraint right even the most free jazz is constrained right um but it's also not for anything hmm. because it's not for money it's not for a publication it doesn't have any restriction i i get to put my stupid on my substack i have i all my stupid photographs i just love walking around and taking photographs they're not very good but it doesn't matter i enjoy it it's like singing in church yeah. It's it's the participation, it's the enjoyment in the collective, you know, uh love of words and sound and images in a in an uplifting or, yeah. or funny or positive way. Yeah. Do you have a dark thing that you put into the world? Or is it all joy <laughs> and, and analysis? <laughs> no, I, I think uh you know, what does Nietzsche say? One is superficial out of profundity. Huh. No, I, I, I'm very aware of, 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 of my darkness and, hmm. I, I, you know, and other people's maybe. But like I say, it's a decision. You can make a decision to be grateful, you know, and to, to be hopeful and optimistic. It's possible. I'm going to end it there. I love ending on a good note. Nina Power, amazing conversationalist. I had no idea what we were going to speak about and... We filled up the time. It's great to interact with you. You too. All right. And cool.